If you have a copy of God's Word, if you could turn with me, Genesis chapter 16. So go to the front of your Bible, flip over, first book of your Bible, chapter 16. We've been studying through the book of Genesis this spring. A few weeks ago, we into chapter 11, chapter 12, we started the life of Abraham. And Abraham got some amazing promises from God. Uh, and one of the things God promised Abraham and Sarah uh, was a child. And God confirmed his promises and the promise of a child over and over and over again in some dramatic and amazing ways. We saw that last week in chapter 15. Well, here in uh, Genesis chapter 16, it's been a decade. It's been 10 years since these promises were made and still no child. Abraham is 85 years old, Sarah is 75 years old, and they're tired of waiting. They're tired of waiting on God. And so they get impatient, and they decide to take matters into their own hands, and in doing so, it turns into a complete train wreck. And before I read our passage this morning, I want to remind you of a really important Bible study principle. And this helps us with passages like this and lots of other passages like this in the Old Testament particularly. Just because the Bible uh, describes something doesn't mean the Bible prescribes something. In other words, this is not an endorsement here on what's going on. This is a description And that's really important as we read and study our Bibles, particularly a passage like this. So with that in mind, follow along with me. Genesis 16, this is the word of the Lord. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go unto my servant, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan. Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked at me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. And the angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, 
You are pregnant and you shall bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him and he will dwell over and against all his kinsmen. And so she said the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well that is called Beer Lahai Roy, it, shall, it lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was six, or 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask the God, God to come through his spirit and to help us this morning. Let's pray together. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be good and right and pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Lord, show us this morning through your spirit that we're a bigger mess than we realize But at the same time, show us how good and gracious and merciful you are through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Philip Yancey tells a story about a British conference on comparative religion. And at this conference, there were experts from all over the world, and they were debating what, if any, belief was unique, utterly unique, and distinguishing about the Christian faith. And they started to go down the list and eliminate possibilities. The incarnation, you know, God becoming man and coming into the world. They looked at the resurrection and what was different about it. And the debate continued until C.S. Lewis wandered into the conference. They were actually having the conference on the campus where he was teaching... And Lewis wandered into this conference and someone recognized him and says, Dr. Lewis, we're discussing religion. What do you think is utterly unique and distinguishing about Christianity? And Lewis looked at them and responded, that's easy. One word, grace. And he said that the rest of the attendees, after he left the room, continued to discuss And they all agreed. You see, every other religion says the good people are in and the bad people are out. And then we come to a passage like this this morning with Abraham, Father Abraham, I might add, father of the Christian faith, and we see this passage runs completely counter to that way of thinking of the good are in and the batter out. You see, the thing I love about the scriptures in the Bible is it doesn't sanitize its heroes. You see, Christianity in the Bible shows us the underbelly and the flaws of our heroes. And this morning, we get the underbelly. We get the failure of Abraham. And yes, that failure came with consequences. No doubt about it. But that failure did not cut Abraham off from the grace of God. Three headings this morning that I want us to see in this passage. One, I want us to look at the situation, what's going on here. 
Secondly, let's look at the disaster uh, and the train wreck that we see in this passage. And lastly, let's look at the hope. So the situation, the disaster, and the hope. If uh, you're a note taker, that's where we're headed this morning. Let's look at our first point, the situation. Look at verses 1 and 2. So Sarah does not have a child. A child has been promised to Abraham and Sarah. And so Sarah says, my female uh, Egyptian concubine or servant or maidservant, Hagar, uh, maybe she can help us, Abraham. Maybe we can have a child through her. But notice there, because the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. And so let's think about the reasoning here from Sarai, or from Sarah. And you hear her reasoning and the premise in the phrase, the Lord has kept me from having children. That is the premise of her entire plan. She doesn't believe God's on her side. She doesn't believe God is for her. She believes God is against her. Her premise is God is not good. That's the premise for what she continues to do in this story. Wrong motive leads her to human scheming and a terrible solution. Look at verse 3. Hagar gave to Abram, or Sarah gave gave Hagar to Abram to be his husband or to be his wife. And when we read that, we're appalled by this, uh, but it was perfectly legal in the ancient Near East, and it was acceptable in this culture. And though it was conventional to them and acceptable in the eyes of everyone in that culture, it was not acceptable to God. Remember Genesis chapter 2 when God talks about the foundation of marriage? He says marriage is between a man and a woman who are in covenant with one another. And they're bringing someone else in to the marriage. And we know that's not acceptable to God. And so let's look at how Abraham responds at the end of verse 2. And Abram listened, and this is the point, not to the voice of God, but to the voice of Sarah. And I want you to think about this for a second. Think about all that Abraham had seen and experienced with God. He'd had some amazing experiences and confirmation of God's promise. And so Abraham should have said, hey, wait a minute, Sarah, look. (laughs) I know God. And he's going to show up because he made a covenant with me. That's not what happens here. Instead of waiting patiently and knowing that God was going to keep his promise... He decides to listen to someone else instead of listen to God. We can understand, perhaps, if it was Sarah, she didn't hear from God. She didn't see God. So maybe we give her a pass, but not Abraham. Instead of trusting God and walking by faith, he decides to trust himself. He decides, hey, we're going to take matters into our own hands. And what we see underneath this is that Abraham's faith was giving a very basic and fundamental test and he failed miserably. And what this teaches us 
is that God's gracious promises are to be believed and to be trusted that we are to walk by faith as God's people in the midst of uncertainty and impossibility. That's what we learn here. And Abraham and Sarah choose human scheming and shortcuts instead of walking by faith and living by faith and trusting God. This passage calls us to choose the way of faith, not the way of shortcuts, because faith is the way of God's people. And you hear me say that, and we think about this story, and we're like, it's been 10 years. And then we think about our own culture, and when you start hearing something like that, faith is the way of God's people, that's easier said than done, isn't it? Because we live in a culture that's insta-everything. We get mad if our computer or phone doesn't pull up the internet in a millisecond. We get frustrated and want a new phone. You see, we want things, don't we, on our timetable. And some of you this morning are in a season of waiting. I don't know what you're waiting on. Maybe... You're waiting for a deal to close or waiting on a project to be finished or waiting for someone in your family to change. Or perhaps you're longing for a child and you're waiting. Or maybe you're waiting on reconciliation or waiting for a family member to become a Christian or a friend. Or maybe you're single and you're waiting to be married. Or you're waiting to buy a house, or you're looking, waiting on a job offer, or whatever it is, college acceptance. Lots of us are waiting. The question is, how do we wait and not take shortcuts? How do we wait and walk by faith? How do we choose the way of faith rather than shortcuts? As we talked about last week, how do we live in that gap and in the waiting Well, a couple of things. One is I think if we're going to walk by faith and not take shortcuts, we have to have a strong belief in the sovereignty of God. And by sovereignty of God, let me define that. I just simply mean a strong belief that God is in total control of all things all the way down to the details of your life. That's what the Bible teaches. The Heidelberg Catechism, remember catechisms are summaries of what the Bible teaches. Heidelberg Catechism 28 on God being in control of all things. God upholds heaven and earth and all creatures and so governs them so that all things come to us not by chance but by God's fatherly hand. That means wherever you are now, it's the very best place for you to be. And if it weren't, then you wouldn't be there. It means that because God is all-knowing, that God is all-wise and all-powerful, that He's actually involved in the waiting. It means that God's fatherly care comes to us in a variety of ways. And we often don't think that way. I don't. We think... God loves us and cares for us only when we're getting what we want, when we want. We learn here that God's love and care means that sometimes God disappoints us. And sometimes God makes us wait. 
See, there are many moments in your life where the very thing that causes us to wonder about God's care is God's care. And then the question is, if we keep working this out, why? Why would God make us wait? And it made me think this week of the Israelites, God's people, on their way to the promised land. Remember, God promises them the promised land, and they have to wait how long? Forty years. They wander in the wilderness. Why? Why didn't God just send them straight there when he made the promise? Moses actually gives us a hint in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. And he says, you shall remember the whole way. Not some of the way. The whole way that the Lord your God has led you. These 40 years in the wilderness. Why? So that he might humble you and test what's in your heart. Why do we wait? Well, we need to know that God is at work in the waiting. God is not absent in the waiting. What's he doing? He's counseling. He's training. He's growing you up and teaching you things and changing you. We think God has left us or he's mad at us. Is it not possible that God's fatherly care for us includes waiting so that we could learn stuff that we could not learn any other way? You see, it's actually in the waiting that your heart is recalibrated and your heart is reformed. It's in the waiting that our heart learns to trust God. Secondly, the disaster. This, this plan doesn't go very well. <laughs> it actually uh, turns into a mess, doesn't it? Look at verse 4 and let's walk through these verses. Hagar becomes proud and she is starts basic because she's pregnant and she's succeeding in something that Sarah's not. She does what all of us would do, and she starts to look down on Sarah. How do you think that went over in the house? Sarah's furious at this. And she takes her fury and her wrath and her shame out on Abraham. And Sarah, of course, was wrong to place all of the blame on Abraham because it was her idea after all. But she's also right, isn't she? Because think about it again. Abraham is the patriarch. He should have known better. He's the one, not her, that had all these promises and saw the covenant with God being made. And God reassured him. And yet he should have stepped in and says, no, God's going to show up. But instead he's passive. And he should have stopped and not allowed this situation to happen. And it was in this moment that Abraham, actually, there are probably other moments, but definitely here, he had an opportunity to repent. And he doesn't. Instead, he's cowardly and callous. And we see it in verse 6 and how he responds. Sarah comes to him, and she's upset about this, and he goes, why are you coming to me? Leave me alone. This is not my problem. She's under your care and under your authority. You deal with this. 
And so he's very callous and cowardly in his response. And if you look here, the word, I'm going to bring out some things so that you see how bad this really is, dealt harshly. That is the same word that is used to describe the Israelites and their slavery in Egypt. It's pretty telling, isn't it? About how she was treated. And then look, uh, you see the word fled there. It's the same Hebrew word that's frequently used of people trying to escape an assassin or trying to escape someone trying to kill them. And so now we get a little fuller picture, don't we? Hagar is literally running for her life. And I tell you that because I want you to see how ugly this is. I want us to feel how messy and what a train wreck this situation is. There is not one honorable character in this story. And the question becomes, what do we do with stories like this in the Bible? What do we learn? Well, I think it's important because stories like this actually teach us to read and understand the Bible. There are lots of stories, actually a lot worse than this, in the Bible that are full of deceit and greed and lust and selfishness. And it helps us because it teaches us uh, that if we read the Bible as a moral guidebook on how to live and how to uh, be a better person and be a good person, uh, then these stories won't make sense to us. Uh, we will ignore these stories, and lots of people ignore these stories. Or, again, you won't know what to do with them, and you'll misinterpret and misapply them and twist them. These stories actually teach us that the Bible primarily is not about us. And it's not about our moral failures and successes. These teach us that there's only one hero, and it's not Father Abraham. There's one hero in the Bible, and it's the greater Abraham. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the hero of the Bible. And if we forget that, then these ugly stories do not make sense to us. Remember C.S. Lewis? Christianity, one word that makes it different, grace. And if we remember that, then we come to these stories, and we see that these stories are about God and about how He works grace in these stories in the midst of human failure and brokenness and when we get that we realize that these stories actually come to life to to us because we see ourselves in these stories and they actually give us hope that God has not left us they also teach us something about ourselves as far as another application here our tendency is to look at these stories and and, and to look at other people's lives and to see the mess that they've made of their lives and to say, well, I can do a lot of things, but I would never do that. And these stories actually recalibrate us and they give us a warning about our own hearts, don't they? Friends, please don't think you're better than Abraham. He's not a new Christian. He's not an immature Christian. He walked with God for a long time. He gave up a lot more than any of us have ever given up to follow God. Remember Genesis chapter 12? He'd given his life. 
And yet, what we see here, after all he experiences and all he does with God and for God, he still falls and he's still flawed and he fails a test of faith. And so what do we do? Well, we take heed and we let this be a warning. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, where Paul says, if you think you're strong, if you think you're standing strong, And standing firm, be careful lest you fall. Jeremiah chapter 17, the heart is deceitful above all else. Who can understand it? Unless we get that, that your heart and my heart is deceitful above all else, then this story will confuse us and we'll look at this story and go, how can Abraham do such a thing? Instead, if we know our hearts, that it's deceitful above all all else, we come to stories like this and others in the Bible and we say, but for the grace of God, go I. God, please help me. Please walk with me. Please protect me. You see, one of the healthiest things you can do for yourself, spiritually speaking, is to develop a healthy mistrust for your own heart. To develop a self-awareness about what's on the inside of you. About your heart. Lastly, the other thing I think this teaches us is something about the nature and, uh, of sin and shortcuts. Ian Duguid writes, When God's promises do not seem like they will materialize, the evil one is immediately on hand to offer deceptive shortcuts. And that's what we see here. You see, it seems like these shortcuts seem so sensible. And they seem like they're going to achieve for us exactly what we want in a more efficient way. But if we go that route, just like Abraham, we will be in a place that we never want to be. And so my question for you is, where is your life right now? Where is is there uncertainty and impossibility in your life? And where are you being threatened by the evil one to take and being tempted to take a shortcut and not live by faith? Let this passage be a gift. Let it be a reminder that sin and shortcuts, yes, they hold out life and promise good and seem sensible, but they lead to complete disaster. Think about this story. Bitterness. Blame shifting jealousy, family breakdown, and despair. Lastly, hope. Believe it or not, there is some hope here. There's good news in this passage, and it's really good news. Look at verse 7, and let's walk through these verses. This is the good stuff. So Hagar's pregnant, she's on the run, she's in the wilderness, and she's by this spring, and the angel of the Lord shows up, surprisingly, and Hagar would later learn that this was God himself. Some think that this is the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. Um, At any rate, the angel of the Lord, I want you to see, does not condemn her. Verse 9, she actually tells her to return home. Verse 10, she gives her this amazing promise. Look at verse 10. I will multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered. What does that sound like? Who did God give those promises to? Abraham. Same promises. Did you know that Hagar, a concubine, 
An Egyptian maidservant is the only matriarch to receive such promises in the Scriptures. And Hagar learns that her descendants will be included in the descendants of Abraham. She is honored here. And not only that, look at verse 11. She, uh, God actually names the child. And the name is Ishmael, God has heard. Verse 12, we learn that his character is not so stellar. That there will be a perpetual conflict around him. And we see that throughout Genesis. That uh, Ishmael and his descendants become a thorn in the side of God's people. And again, a reminder, yes, God's gracious. But at the same time, there is long-lasting consequences to shortcuts and to sin. Look at verse 13 and 14. I love this section. Hagar bestows two names, one on God and the other on a place. But both celebrate the same reality. The first on God, she says, you are a God of seeing. You are the God who has looked after me. And then the place, uh, Bir Lahai Roy, that actually means well of the living one who sees me. So what is Hagar doing? She's worshiping. Why is Hagar worshiping? Notice she's not reveling in the fact she's having a child and it's in the descendants of Abraham. What's she reveling in? God. And God's graciousness and grace to her. Why? Because she's a nobody. She's an Egyptian maidservant. She's all alone. Why is she running? She's alone in the wilderness because she has nowhere to go. Because no one cares for her. Because she's all alone in this world and she's desperate and no one cares. Yes, there is one who cares and it's God. And God sees her. I love verse 11. The Lord has heard her affliction. Notice it does not say that Hagar prayed so well and prayed so perfectly and sincerely that God heard her and came to her rescue. It does not say that she was so patient in that hard situation and so faithful and so righteous and so trusting that God says, okay, because of that I'm going to show up. No, God heard her and her affliction and He came to her in distress and says, you think no one sees, you think no one knows, but I do. Because God is such, has such a loving and caring heart that He hears the cries of those that are in pain, those who are in, who are in distress and are suffering affliction. Does that encourage you this morning? Are you in pain? Are you suffering from affliction? Do you feel all alone? God sees you. And God hears your cries. There's also, I know in a room this size, there are a lot of messes in this room. There are a lot of messes that have been caused by our impatience and our shortcuts and our bad decisions. And some of those messes have wreaked havoc on our lives. And there's been tremendous consequences on our families and on our businesses and on our finances and on our marriages and on our friendships. And you walk into this room and you hear this and you feel still such guilt and shame and you wonder, 
if God is still with you or if God has given up on you. And the good news of this passage is that it shows you that God, the God of the Scriptures, and we see it throughout from Genesis to Revelation, God doesn't quit on messy people. That God draws near to messy people. That God sees you. And he hears your cry of affliction that God shows mercy in the messes that we make. He doesn't run away. He draws near. God sees and he hears. And you think about Abraham. And I'll close with this. Abraham did not end up a failure. Read the New Testament. How does the New Testament talk about Abraham? As a man of faith. Not as a man of failure. Why? Because God is faithful when we are unfaithful. Why? Because Abraham's goodness was not in himself. His goodness came from God. Remember last week? Genesis chapter 15 verse 6. Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. Which means that God treats Abraham as if he had lived a righteous life. Had been completely faithful. Had passed this test of faith even though in his heart he was actually very flawed and a complete failure. God treated him as if he were righteous. It was credited to him. And remember the covenant last week, Genesis chapter 15, the animals are split in half, and who walks between the animals and takes the covenant and the oath of the covenant? One person, and it was God. And that was God's way of saying, Abraham... If you break this cov- if I break this covenant, the penalty will fall on me and I'll take the curse. And then I, he walked through it and not Abraham. And that was his way of saying, and Abraham, if you break this covenant, then I'll take the penalty too. And it didn't take long and Abraham broke the covenant, didn't he? And you and I break the covenant, don't we? Insert gospel. Insert Jesus Christ who came and died on a cross for our failures and for Abraham's failures. All of those were laid on him. And when we by faith trust in Jesus, righteousness gets credited to us. That's the good news of the gospel. It was good news for a failure like Abraham. It was good news... For a maidservant like Hagar, and it's good news for failures like us this morning, isn't it? Will you come to Jesus this morning? You see, the gospel really is better than we think. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your faithfulness and goodness to us. You are so good and so gracious. Would you forgive us? for taking matters into our own hands and taking shortcuts rather than walking by faith. Holy Spirit, help us to trust you, to trust your fatherly hand and guidance and to believe that you are good and loving towards us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.